This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is her podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Beating the Story. Pizzagate. Delta Green's European Vacation. And Tolkien Displacement. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R or leave immediately for your local game store before it's taken over by the hated British. Every so often at Ken and Robin Global Headquarters, we like to pull open the closet in a big hurry and see what comes tumbling out. And as always, what comes tumbling out is an assortment of headgear, delightful hats, fedoras, trilbies, a top hat, one of those little scotch beret things that folds over with a, with a uh, ball in it. And also, in here, it's a hat that points the way to narrative, perhaps. It's a messenger cap for a, for a bike messenger or an old-timey telegram deliverer. All we know is that stories going to happen when that hat gets here and underneath that hat is our own robin d laws to talk about beating the story robin i'm assuming you don't mean beating the story with a hammer until it stops annoying you you mean something else yes you you mean whip it into shape uh so this is uh my upcoming uh follow-up to hamlet's hit points it'll be out this spring and pre-orders uh should be open now if you follow the link in the show notes to the game playwright site uh and what beating the story does is it takes the uh, beat analysis system that you may be familiar with from Hamlet's Hit Points, which looks at the building blocks of narrative, and then applies them to writing fiction in general in whatever form, whether we're talking screenplays or drama or prose fiction, uh, whatever storytelling form you want to think of, comic books, uh, this uh, way of looking at narrative, this set of tools that will allow you to uh, sharpen up your storytelling game uh, is uh, is ready for you because over the years uh, a number of people have said to me, "Hey, you know that that Hamlet's Hit Points uh, book analyzing role playing? You know that's not really a role playing book. You know, it's a writing guide and it is geared to role players." So I thought, "Well, wait a minute. What I should do is the new version of it that actually is explicitly a writing guide right. and will be accessible to people who want to use it as such and." Spare them having to figure out all this nonsense about player characters and game. Exactly. And so Why put the uh, what is role playing section in the front of Sid Field? That I guess was the question we all want to know. Although one assumes that you have blown past Sid Field and left him choking in the dust. How is beating the story the story beating guide that you would want to get if you were an upcoming screenwriter, comic writer? Uh, YouTube thread developer, whatever the heck it is they do there. Um, in, in our new narrative forms, why is beating the story the thing to get so that you can beat others to beating the story? Well, what uh, Sid Field, who's a very influential, a writer of a very influential screenwriting manual that was uh, all the rage back when I was in uh, uh, university and taking writing courses, and maybe still is, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, the, what a lot of writing guides do uh, is... Well, first of all, as John Rogers points out in his uh, lovely foreword to the book, a lot of writing guides are a lot That would of, be uh, acclaimed television showrunner John Rogers, wouldn't it? E exactly yes. so. Right. Um, and what he points out is that 
a lot of writing guides are full of airy-fairy nonsense about, you know, your dreams and, um, you know, mystically seeking inspiration. This is not that book. No. This is tools to use to uh, either uh, outline your narrative ahead of time or once you've written it, if you're more of a seat of pantser, to go back and hone it and sculpt it into something that is, uh, uh, you know, fulfills uh, the uh, rules of a satisfying narrative. So this is a get-your-hands-dirty technical way of looking at writing. So it's not about providing inspiration. There's a little bit at the beginning, uh, which is, you know, sort of some words of advice to beginning writers, but it's more tough love Mm -hmm. than about going out and meeting your story elves in the grove. After all, there is beating involved. Yes, indeed. But also, unlike Sid Field and unlike a lot of other writing guides, this book is not trying to tell you what structure to create your story uh, around. And the thing about structure is that individual markets may require a very tight structure, whether we're talking, you know, a Harlequin-style uh, romance or an episode of television or um, movies in different eras. 22 pages of Batman. Exactly. Or th- there's also the fact that over time structures come and go, that a, uh, a structure that seems really fresh and useful for a while will eventually become stale because you will notice its uh, appearance in, in uh, for example, the Sidfield model in screenplays. You can tell when it is being employed because it's like, oh, here's the... Okay, the first act, and this has been establishing the status quo and setting up the problem and making the hero aware of the problem. And, oh, we must be on page 21 because now the hero is taking action to deal with the problem. And then later, oh, well, look, we must be page uh, 86 because here's where the, the, the downiest downturn has occurred. And this is where it's all going to turn around. And, and uh, so there is some sort of structural uh, advice around pacing and so forth. For example... Uh, there are certain elements of storytelling that you don't want to be introducing near the end of your narrative, the one that you don't want more exposition uh, when you're headed for the home stretch. But in general, this is structure agnostic. So this is going into the individual emotional rhythm of the way that uh, scenes and moments work and how they interrelate to each other and what makes compelling emotional line, uh, a rhythm that people continue to engage with uh, throughout the course of your narrative as opposed to something that feels uh, flat or repetitive. And so this is where we introduce the uh, different sorts of story beats that you may know from Hamlet's Hit Points. Uh, it, the two big types of beats in, the, in any form of storytelling, I argue, are the procedural beat, in which the uh, focus character is attempting to overcome a physical or external uh, or impersonal obstacle. So he might be, uh, you know, trying to survive a duel with somebody or download the crucial document from the system that he's hacked into or, you know, escape the rolling boulder that's coming to crush him. Or there's the dramatic beat in which two or more characters engage and uh, the focus character, the uh, petitioner, uh, I call it, uh, based on the uh, nomenclature developed by uh, Walter Murch, uh, seek something from the grantor. And so this is a scene of uh, one character seeking an emotional reward or gratification or concession from the other. And then uh, sort of modulating those are information beats, uh, which are uh, very uh, crucial, particularly to uh, the more procedurally oriented storytelling and where you place information in order to make it seem not obvious and pay off later, and how information works emotionally in the narrative is very important. And then there are sort of flourish beats, uh, which are uh, sort of tertiary beats that uh, occur in some stories, but you may or, or may not be able to do without. So do you have a uh, overlapping beat? So if, for example, in a science fiction world or a fantasy world, many of the beats have to double as information beats because you have to introduce people to a fantastical setting that they don't know without just having an as-you-know-Bob moment. So a petitioner request also has to convey information as to why it matters that they want the Iridium or they want the uh, House of Grantfell or whatever. And um, so it can it has to function as both. Is that... Uh, within the purview of, of beating the story? Yeah, so what the way that you would notate that if you're making a story map is you would have the information beat either on one side or the other of the dramatic beat because, one of, as you suggest, one of the primary ways in making information provided to the reader palatable 
is to uh, have an emotional reason for the characters to uh, engage with it. So if you need them to know uh, something about the Horn of Orpheus, which they need to, you know, open the uh, the gate uh, at the end, if one character just sort of comes up and says, hey, would you like to know about the Horn of Orpheus? Or here's your briefing, which I'm going to tell you about the Horn of Orpheus. The viewer tends to tune out at that because, oh, here's the boring lecture part. And I guess I've got to take notes. Whereas if one of the characters is... Uh, has a strong emotional reason to either seek or withhold information about the Horn of Orpheus, we then engage with it emotionally rather than just as a set of imaginary facts that were given. You will probably find that useful if you're making a story map, which is now easier than ever with the storybeats.io app, to put those side by side in order to know that you've got to remember to have both your emotional element in your scene and also you got I got to remember that they, you know, there's an offhanded mention of this thing that becomes important later in the narrative. Yeah, we do have to um, lay pipe for uh, the eventual fact that this that this information will become useful and relevant as opposed to just showing off the amount of research or invention that I did in the writing process. Right, and that's something that uh, if you're writing stuff in an imaginary world, uh, going through this process will alert you to the extent that you're just going off on a long tangent where you're writing up your world and having people talk in a sort of a dispassionate way about a bunch of stuff that you thought of without then going on and making that matter to the viewer. And so uh, in general, uh, the tolerance of the reader or viewer for a lot of uh, background information is possibly lower than the amount of information that your typing fingers uh, would want to provide. And so this encourages you to think about do I really need this bit of information about the world? And also, what's the best way to uh, present it? And another great way to present that information is you start off with a question beat. So you introduce a, a, a mystery uh, around uh, whatever question you want to set up. So in this version, you the, the Horn of Orpheus, someone will go, oh, gee, the, I've heard legends of the Horn of Orpheus, but uh, no one really wants to talk about it. And so then when you finally do introduce the the answer to that question later you've posed a question beat and a question causes emotional anxiety in the up and down rhythm that is the core of any compelling narrative and then later on when your uh, protagonist discovers what the horn of orpheus is the audience is invested in that and getting the information the reveal beat is then uh registers as as an emotional up note because uh, one of the i guess really the central idea of the beat system is to keep an eye on the extent to which you're continually modulating between hope and fear, between uh, positive audience reactions and reactions of uh, concern or unease. Because if you have a whole bunch of positive moments in a row, the uh, audience member uh, tunes out and similarly your reader will uh, uh, disengage and become discouraged if you have too many down uh, beats in a row. And so uh, if you think of the classic moment in a procedural horror story where the uh, focused character is running away from the creature or the slasher, they get in their car. Yay, that's an up note. But then they fumble with the keys. They drop the keys. That's a down note. They get the keys and put them in the engine. The engine starts again. Oh, no, but the engine conks out. So that's an example of the the sort of up and down rhythm. Uh, now, uh, that's a very <laughs> clear example of, of very big emotions going up and down. But you get that even in a naturalistic drama scene of two people working out their emotional relationship to one another as the character who you're uh, identifying with uh, both makes mistakes and succeeds in their emotional tactics when dealing with the uh, person they're seeking the emotional reward or, or concession from. Again, this sort of notion of blended beats or blended tones is uh, very clear in, for example, Lovecraft, where the character wants to know some, the answer to some question, some mystery about the world. And so we are invested in that character finding out what happened to his uncle or what was going on with his ancestry or what's going on in this weird town. And as he finds out information, we're happy that he got the information, but we're simultaneously, we, we, we have fear because the information makes everything worse. It doesn't, it's not like, oh, it turns out my uncle just had a longstanding heart condition. Not, no one killed him. Ha <laughs> ha. His research was stupid. No, it, it, it makes everything worse and more terrible, even though the beat is 
mechanically up, it's narratively uh or emotionally down now is, the, right. is there uh, again that's uh, i i keep coming back to they're, blended they're beats and i swear to god i have a second beats. point at some point <laughs> yeah uh they're absolutely ambiguous beats where those two things cross each other that's it's something happens it's both good and bad another example is when you're rooting with a care uh, for a character who wants something that you through dramatic irony realized is bad for her so our hero is in love with a cad and uh, she uh, gets him to agree to marry her. She's very happy, but we know that's going to turn out wrong. And so that is another example of an ambiguous beat with a crossed arrow that is both up and down. The Those are often the most powerful moments in a narrative because they are contradictory and introduce ambiguity. But at the same time, they, like any other strong flavor, must be used with care because if every outcome of every moment in your story is ambiguous, well, guess what? Again, that's flat and will cause uh, your uh, reader to start to, to tune out just because I don't know how to feel about any of this. Maybe I'm going to, you know, head on to the next short story by a different author in this anthology. Yeah. Um, now, it, what we have the individual beats for uh, not even necessarily scenes because we've just talked about how scenes can contain more than one beat. Um, is there a a notion within beating the story of grouping beats into uh, structures. You said, you said previously, it's not about how to structure your screenplay or your whatever, but acts exist for a reason. Freitag's triangle is real. It's not just something we all made up. Is there uh, a larger meta beat? Is there uh hyper beats? How do you organize all the beats to create, uh, to create structure or to, or to uh, note when, You've done enough rising, and now it's time for falling. The thing that's different uh, about beating the story that is not in Hamlet's hit points is the way scenes move between one another. So again, I'm not I'm trying to uh, create something that's agnostic in terms of structure, with a few key exceptions. And I do talk about you know the rising action and so forth, but that the structure is part of the meaning of the story that you're trying to tell, and so that's. Uh, something that you need uh, to be able to develop based on what it is that you're trying to say. And again, the requirements of your client. But the thing that I think is, is very interesting about fiction that you don't have to worry about in role-playing is how you move from one scene, from one unit of narrative to the next. Because in role-playing, that's just sort of seamless. You just say, yeah, okay, now you're down at the docks. Um, and it may even sort of not be all that apparent, or you may go backwards and forwards in time. But in straight up regular flavored fiction, how you move from one sequence to the next uh, has a big impact on the uh, reader's sense of uh, momentum and engagement. And so I've uh, found a, a new system of uh, narrative units that are all about the, the transition types. And we'll delve into that in uh, more detail in a, a future segment. Of, uh, of this uh, podcast. We'll do a how to write good on those. But basically, there are a bunch of types of, uh, for example, the, the strongest one I argue is called the outgrowth, where the thing that arises in scene A then directly uh, carries you through into scene B, that scene B is a result of what happened in scene A. Or a continuation uh, transition, for example, it's the same character, they're still following the same general goal, but they've adopted a new tactic. And that's uh, still strong, but not as strong as an outgrowth. And and then you've got a break where you're just, okay, let's see what this other character is doing. And so we'll, we'll go into more detail on that. But that is the thing that while working on this, I found the most uh, interesting in, in terms of finding uh, a new way of looking at narrative and a new way of looking at why, you know, one film is extremely compelling and another of the same genre, uh, the, the script just seems to kind of go sideways. And uh, sometimes it's a simple matter of just how strong the transitions are. Well, when you are plugging future segments here on Ken and Robin, what we know is that that is the sign that we are going to transition, perhaps abruptly, uh, find out what another HUD is doing, perhaps as an outgrowth. But we're going to do it through a lovely ad and into another hut.
There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of Terror Town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pulgrane Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In, in Cthulhu, Cthulhu City. So it's time to once more head into a segment. Then when we started this podcast a few years ago was... Uh, just fun, crazy stuff about other places and other times. And now the conspiracy corner is all up in our grill and in our Twitters and infesting our democracy if we have one. And it's time to look at a uh, conspiracy theory that you may think of as uh, old hat from the historical days of 2016, but indeed has been uh, cooking along under the surface, getting crazier and crazier. And uh, we want to, I think, probably look at this in terms of uh, how it compares to other historical conspiracy theories and how the differences and similarities, uh, what they tell us about where conspiracy is headed in our present day. And so I, I refer, of course, to Pizzagate, which was plenty weird to begin with and has been getting even weirder uh, under the surface. It's been metastasizing, as it were. So uh, this, of course, is the anti-Clinton conspiracy theory that was promulgated by uh, white supremacists in the run-up to the uh, 2016 election and uh, led uh, to an incident where uh, people could have gotten very badly hurt and seemed to recede from consciousness, but uh, the uh, the fever swamps are still in a fever. So, Ken, where do we, how do we start getting our uh, arms around this? You can't argue this is a conspiracy that eventually becomes anti-Semitic because it starts with white nationalists. Right, yeah. It's like it, saying it's, a dog has eventually become quadruple. Right, it, it's a, um, uh, it's, uh, it, to begin with, we should emphasize that this, unlike, as you, as you hinted, the fun and joy of history and the fun and joy of people in foreign lands, uh, this one has the possibility to cause very real danger here in America. And it, in fact, almost did. Uh, and so we should all, begin with a big breath and say, this is not just crazy, which is kind of fun. This is also disgusting. This is just, um, you know, a grout conspiracy. This is not a fun, happy cheese conspiracy here. The mold and the bacteria have made everything worse, not better. So yes, in both, in both content and in uh, possible. Outcome. Exactly. So the, um, uh, the content, uh, briefly stated is, um, to use a fairly standard method of conspiratorially looking at the world, which is the look for coded signals. And if you are a devotee of the works of uh, deranged um, uh, preacher Texan Mars, maybe he's not a preacher, maybe he just likes preachers a lot, deranged uh, apocalyptic fundamentalist Christ, uh, Texan Mars, you've seen it in its most helpful and useful way, in which you examine every hand gesture ever made by every world leader to determine who's in the Illuminati and who's not. And that's great fun, and we can all enjoy that. But this uh, takes that same sort of sifting for clues based on a outside frame of reference and applied it to the the leaked emails from John Podesta. Um, and leaked is perhaps too strong a word. He was he was fished and fell for it, and the result got out into the uh, interwebs. But they uh, stolen would be another <laughs> another possible word. Sure, but but the big bot the the big wadge of emails became. Uh, 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 raw material, and if we've learned anything at Ken and Robin talk about stuff, it's that any mass of raw material, when examined with the proper derangement or detachment, can reveal a narrative, can reveal an understory, can reveal a, con a current. And in this case, what they were looking for was pedophile smuggling rings uh, for some right. reason. And well, uh, and, and the more um, quotidian and boring a mass of data is, the harder you have to work to make it sinister. 
Um, and so the, the Podesta emails largely are not even as scandalously interesting as the characters on an episode of Veep would send each other. They're boring day-to-day campaign stuff. And one of the things you do a lot in a campaign is order pizza. Right. <laughs> and But that can't be the whole story if you're a crazy person. If you're a crazy person with malign intent, they can't possibly, like, why would political campaigns order a lot of pizza? That's that's insane. We need a, an explanation involve, involving pedophilia to account And satanic that. child abuse. Yes. Uh, which draws, you know, again on, you know, all of these things are taking threads from past conspiracy theories, you know, pulling them off the shelf and, uh, and putting them back together in a new combination. So we've got uh, protocols of the elders of Zion logic going on. And of course, we've got satanic panic uh, logic, which in- infuses uh, also the uh, is- Islamophobic movement as well. And you have um, uh, any number of sort of pre-existing narratives that are being interpreted or uh interpreted into literally interpreted into the into this content and so uh, pizza became the code uh the key by which you would break the code and discover what they were actually talking about which can't have been hey let's not go to wisconsin that's boring it it turns out to be something like uh let's all meet up at this pizza place and have sex rituals or whatever and um uh the uh sort of ridiculous nature of the entirely deracinated internet means that if someone has an interest in putting a meme onto the surface, there's lots and lots of different ways to do it. And in a world where you're only looking for clicks, it hardly matters what the content of the click is. And that's why you have even such normally, um, uh, what do I want to say? Regularly unhinged people as Alex Jones or InfoWars, uh, uh, they latch onto this. What I would think, even if you're Alex Jones, would look crazy to you and latch onto it and elevate it and give it a megaphone and a microphone and make it a but bigger it story. Nutritional exactly. As long as it gets people tuning in and clicking, then who cares what the content is? It's very uh, revenue neutral in that way. But again, the more you repeat something, the more you have an investment in believing it or at least in defending it. And that is what happened with this whole sort of alt-right uh, news uh, aggregator. And I use the word news with a Z so that it doesn't contain real news, like spelling cheese with a Z. Right. And you have our, our troll farms funded by the FSB right. who uh, any source of, uh, of dysfunction uh, in the in the body politic, uh, then you get your... Uh, you know, your trolls uh, are working on that. To so amplify they, it. To, to, they amplified it as well. And it's not certainly not the, the first time there is a connection between uh, uh, U.S. white supremacists and uh, the and the Kremlin. Right. The larger question of the uh, identity movement is perhaps for a different uh, segment. But in this particular case, one hardly needs that because the Kremlin is, as you say, just looking for evidence of any dysfunction so that it can be amplified. It's like reverse aspirin. You know, wherever there's an ache, it will inflame it. Um, and that's what they did. The Turkish press did the similar thing. Uh, once Erdogan got um, a bee in his bonnet about how mad he was at America for some reason. Um, and the result was predictably that some poor crazy person believed all this nonsense, went down to the pizza parlor with a couple of guns, thank God fired them into the air as part of his, uh, what did he call it? Self investigation of, of the theory. And then very immediately said, I've made a terrible, terrible mistake, uh, which is, I guess the best possible end to a story that involves a man bringing a machine gun to a pizza place. Yeah. So that was in, in de- that was December 6th of 2016. And we thought that it was all over and that we were all done yeah. worrying about and, it now. And he pled guilty and he's serving a four year prison term. But since then, uh, the people who have, uh, you know, have been getting their dopamine hits by finding new readings of apparently quotidian things and interpreting them as part of this uh, international pedophile conspiracy have not stopped their labors. And so we had a situation where on uh, December 27th of 2017, uh, the uh, model uh, Chrissy Teigen and her husband, John Who, by the way, are national treasures. uh, Yes. We should emphasize this. Yes. And and who knows why white supremacists would want to go after them. At any rate, uh, they uh, wanted to do what uh, what well-heeled uh, people, uh, you know, just do and get on a plane to Tokyo in order to have a New Year's Eve in Tokyo. And something unrelated and weird happened uh, on the flight, which is that someone boarded that flight to Tokyo who was supposed to be on a different flight to Tokyo. 
And it turns out that airline regulations require uh, you, when you discover this halfway through the flight, to turn around and go back to L.A., not to keep going to Tokyo and to sort it out. And Chrissy Teigen, uh, with her uh, Wi-Fi connection on the plane, uh, decided to uh, communicate her uh, understandable dudgeon about this uh, to the world. Uh, and there was a shot of them, I gather, and, and I guess John Legend's pant leg looks slightly askew. And if you are deep in the weeds of this conspiracy now, you know that actually half the celebrities and politicians in America are under secret house arrest because of Pizzagate. And the way that you can tell that they've been secretly arrested for pedophilia is that they have an ankle bracelet on so that any sign of someone's pant leg being uh, sort of out of place because pant legs never fold in a weird way in a shot of an airline or, you know, yes. or, or when you're walking down the street uh, is evidence that you're pedophile uh, and under house arrest unless your ankle is patently, obviously, totally clear of any impediments, in which case that is also proof that you have been under house arrest and are a, a pedophile because the government can't let you know that and so they have to disguise the ankle bracelet somehow so that's the level of of uh logic that this conspiracy theory has has gone to so it's gone through many permutations of uh of uh nutballness and the uh end result is that chrissy Teigen and john legend have basically uh threatened a lawsuit for someone who dragged them into this nonsense and we will see if that has a clarifying or at least a uh, simplifying effect on what gets out there because bots can bot all they want. But if actual, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, humans don't uh, spread it, these things do tend to sort of just diminuendo off into the, into the outer reaches and we don't hear from them again. Right. And the idea that you're playing in, in this sort of fantasy land of studying Instagram photos for evidence of your conspiracy, uh, you, you might come back to Earth a bit when you discover that not only is the celebrity you're attacking a real person who reads the Internet, but they have a lawyer or seven <laughs> who are also re real people yes. and can find your address. Right. I mean, th this is one of those things because we are in a a unexplored space in terms of. Uh, of human interaction, uh, the, 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 pr the immediacy of human, of social media, the ubiquity of social media, the ability to create communities of like-minded believers in social media. All of those things were true back in the old broadsheet conspiracy days, back when you used to spread your conspiracy with a printing press uphill in the snow both ways. Um, but now they are amplified, and as with everything else about humanity, uh, everything bad about humanity is amplified by everything that uh, gives you any possibility to act. So the new capacity for fecklessness, self-delusion, and uh, malignity is now perhaps unmeasurable, perhaps uncheckable. We don't know because we're in a new world. We we don't know cognitively what's happening to us uh, looking at Twitter all the time instead of um, uh, sunsets or um, uh, kitties, or even if we look at sunsets and kitties on Twitter, we don't know what that does, much less we don't know what it does to our body politic to have this sort of constant churn uh, with no training, I guess, to sort out What's background chatter and what's actual pattern? And this goes back to, you know, basic human, uh, human brain structure in that we are designed to find patterns in things. That's how, you know, millions of years of evolution made us so that we could say, that's just a bunch of shadows. That is a delicious clump of fruit. I'm going to go eat the clump of fruit. I'm not going to go to the shadows. And over there, that's uh, an, uh, a panther. And I'm not going to go over there because it's full of panther. So that ability to make these instant connections and drive very invested emotional decisions from them is how we're wired and how that responds to a world where there is literally an infinity of connections to be made. And the only thing that determines whether or not you'll connect something is whether or not you get that dopamine hit, as you say. We have no idea if that's, if, if, um, uh, if we are able to sort of come out the other side in the same way that humanity developed, um, social immunities to hard alcohol, uh, in the 17th century and figured out how to just not be absolutely dead drunk all the time or whether or not it's something we can't develop social immunities to and we'll flee into the peace and safety of a new dark age and about time right. too. We, we don't know if there are more conspiracy minded people now or if just they're the, 
ability, the people with that mindset are a constant, but now they're able to get together immediately and have a force multiplier effect where they can create their new mythology within instance of uh, a a set of uh, stolen emails becoming public or an apparently simple Instagram picture of yourself on a plane or later a picture of uh, them with uh, with their kid for Halloween was then, you know, all these insane uh, theories were then uh, ladled onto that so that uh, people who are creating this new mythology for themselves that enable them to uh, the narrative that allows them to believe uh, these outlandish things can do so immediately and find like-minded people to form, uh, you know, a new virtual uh, faith tribe based on this uh, skewed mythology. And whether or not it appeals just to people who are, as you say, predisposed to that faith tribe, or whether or not it actively degrades everyone who is part of it, because it turns out, you know, we're all a little bit country, we're all a little bit rock and roll. Uh, back in the day, you used to stay in your musical tribe and not leave it. But now, with Spotify and all music everywhere forever, everyone can hear some Swedish electropunk and say, well, I'm not into Swedish electropunk, but I like that song, and that song's got a little piece of my head now. And so you have... Um, the possibility that even if you're a, a normal, sensible person, you'll see things flash by your, your, your retinas and say, Oh, I always thought that everyone in Hollywood was, was, uh, sick degenerate. I guess that I can sort of incorporate that. You don't, you know, go out and, you know, work for the, you know, the white nationalist ethno state, but you say everyone in Hollywood's a sick degenerate and you move on. And that little bit of, uh, uh, at least fallacious reasoning, although one could argue that maybe <laughs> we, we are, uh, we, the, the, the problem is not the sick degeneracy question, but the direction in which it was being pointed. Um, but all those sort of little bits of, of data that you may not take on to your whole personality, but they have an effect. They have some sort of, um, uh, of connective tissue is set up in your brain that it wouldn't be merely because of the ubiquity of the information. And that, right. You can, re- you can reject something on the liminal level, right. But still your brain has, you know, the name of the politician being uh, produced and the word pedophile next to them. And that may have an effect that you, you know, aren't even necessarily uh, consciously aware of, even if you, your analytical mind has, has debunked it as nonsense. Right. And that, and that degree of, of sort of um, self-awareness and self-policing is not something that Western society has been super interested in for the last 40 or 50 years. And so the question is, is there a way through this particular swamp and out the other side, just like there was a way through the gin craze in London, or is this a sign that, um, uh, nope, we've, we figured out how to destroy ourselves and it wasn't with nuclear weapons. It was just with, um, uh, Twitter. Yes. Uh, uh, memes. Yeah. Memes, uh, will come for us all. Well, uh, before, uh, memes catch up with us and kill us, uh, we better distract them uh, with, uh, an exciting and beautiful commercial and then come right back for another segment. Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come, but the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure game book in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Experience the ups and downs of the thrilling narrative that is Patreon backerhood alongside such confreres as... Adrian Cable. Simon Proctor. Jason Franzella. Jesse Lowe. And Urs Blumentritt. It's time once more to Ask Ken and Robin, and this time on Ask Ken and Robin, Patreon backer Marco Marini asks Ken in particular a question that keeps us 
on the conspiracy trail, but this these are imaginary conspiracies, many of them, or ones we're making more imaginary, therefore plausible. He asks, I'm a rabid fan of the Delta Green universe, and I'm waiting for the fall of Delta Green sourcebook, uh, which is actually a game. I'm trying to give a less Anglo-centric spin to my campaign, maybe adding some of the non-kosher groups like the Fist of Allah, Gaddafi's Delta Green, or Section Desperu, the French version. How would you build uh, these groups from a historical point of view? And uh, he starts off with a section this where he says, uh, For this, I was thinking to connect its uh, creation to Vidoc's Brigade de Surete and its first chief, Pierre Allard. Uh, you want to help him uh, on, his, on his path there, Ken? Um, I think that uh, I will begin by saying a couple of things. Uh, first, that Delta Green, the Delta Green universe becomes... I don't want to say cheapened, but I will say a little coarsened if it turns out every country has its own Delta Green. If every country has uh, has a, a secret Cthulhu fighting agency, then all Cthulhu fighting agencies become less cool because the level of drama and interest uh, developed by that contrast, that quotidian, that contrast between quotidian law enforcement or quotidian espionage and cosmic horror is the, sh- the you know, the hit, it goes down the more times you shoot up with it. So it becomes that like the John Wick universe where right. hitmen have an infrastructure and they all stay at the same hotel and yeah and and one individual amazing hitman is less cool than fifty amazing indiv- uh, hitmen because now you're like well I I this is now a subculture this is a thing that is um uh, and it becomes increasingly implausible by the way that they don't exchange notes and become the boring you know UN fighting Cthulhu that uh, Brian Lumley invented and Brian Lumley at least had the common decency to do it in a short short novel so um well the, the, the white helmets make them easier for tentacles to spot and grab right yeah the the, the little blue hats um uh, yeah. is actually an attempt to disguise yourself so that when azathoth looks down he just thinks he's seeing the sky so if you're saying well i want the the libyans and i want the french and i want the chinese and i want the japanese and i want all of these countries that in yes a realistic universe if there was as pervasive a cthulhu mythos as lovecraft paints much less lovecraft's epigones uh and uh other successors um you would have stumbled on uh, the french police would have stumbled on the ghoul network in paris they would have uh, uh been called to the uh, rue d'Assel by all the reports of weird noises and time gates um there, there would have been a discovery by the french foreign legion of these weird uh alhazridic sects off in algeria um all of these things would have happened but you have to presume for the purposes of keeping your world uh, uh, neat, or at least um, uh, maximally interesting, that most of the people who discovered that got eaten or went mad or refused to believe it and shut off all the investigation. They torched the files and said, we're never looking into that again. And that is, I think, required in order to keep the, the, the story both plausible, which is half the meat of Delta Green, and also interesting, which is the other half. All of that said, um, sure, why not knock yourself out, add the French. Um, uh, if, if what you want to do is tell the story of the French Delta Green, and that does not then immediately set up in your mind, well, where's the German Delta Green? They were better at secret policing than the French always. Well, how is Pisces interacting with this, uh, sex, with Section Desperu? Um, they're, they're right across the channel from each other and they would have been cooperating during the war. Why are they not part of Pisces? How does this not get out? Um, if you, if you've already solved those sort of meta questions and all you want to do is look for, um, uh, your, your origin points, then it's really a question of what part of the mythos do you think your team is exploring or battling, uh, or at least began to battle and then who would have discovered it? So when you say, if we began with the ghouls, in uh paris yeah the french police make make a perfectly good sense the prefecture of police uh the surete you could go back to the brigade de la surete you could go all the way back to um uh what's his name alexander lenoir who was lieutenant of police under louis the 16th and um uh did a lot of digging around in the catacombs when they discovered that they existed and, and louis the 14th of course had a, a, a secret policeman who investigated the affair of the poison yes and so right. he knew his way around the occult mm-hmm. you can go way back yes. you can go to back to charlotte yeah you you could in theory with his um uh, lupori who are the knights who rode around france and killed werewolves and um if they were actually killing ghouls then that's uh maybe a, a secret uh transmission all the way back from charlemagne or at the very least something that existed in french monasteries that could then have been brought up drawn up by richelieu or mazarin who are running the french secret police under louis uh, 13 and 14 and so you have any number of possibilities 
as far back as you, as you care to dig it. And so picking Vidoke, uh, is fun, uh, but it's arbitrary. Uh, the reason the Delta Green picks, uh, the ONI and the Innsmouth raid is because thank God Lovecraft actually says this is when the federal government notices the mythos. He gives us a starting point. So we don't have to ask, well, what about Paul Revere? He was riding around in uh, New England. Didn't he notice that everyone was wizards? Um, <laughs> you, you could have had any number of things happen in America, but Lovecraft tells us when we discovered it. And so we know it's the ONI and we know that they're fighting the Cthulhu cult. So the similar thing is if you're going to um, uh, Gaddafi's Delta Green, and frankly, I would do the Iranians, not Gaddafi, not least because Gaddafi wound up in a in a culvert at the side of the road and the Iranians are still out making trouble for everybody. And so they uncover this, uh, the, this Al-Hazridic current in, in, in the, in the, in the mosques and in the ulama and they're, and they're like, Oh, look, some of this magic works. Perhaps we can use it to, um, uh, uh, burn the lesser Satan Israel. And other people are like, uh, no, if you use it at all, uh, it's terrible and blasphemous and you destroy yourself. And Allah doesn't want you using it even on Israel. And so you have that sort of majestic versus Delta Green tension in, um, uh, in the Iranian government. And that might be, I think, a little more fun than, uh, than uh, Gaddafi. Unless you say Gaddafi had a Delta Green. It was the only Delta Green in the Arab world. And then Gaddafi went away. And now what do they do? Because that's kind of an interesting question on the other half of it. The structural question of when no one is paying the bills and the government has disintegrated, you can't even be a cowboy conspiracy hidden within the Libyan government. There is no Libyan government. Yeah, it's not that you've been burned. <laughs> yeah. It's that you, you, you remain unburned, but everything has been but burned But everything else you. is burned. So are you now just a, a death squad wandering North Africa, whacking people? Are you trying to create a militia? Are you trying to um, uh, desperately attract the attention of real Delta Green or of the uh, GRUS V8, who uh, at maybe at some point uh, you met because of the Russian were uh, giving uh, Qaddafi all of his Semtex. I mean, how do you put that together as what's what's your goal? And what if you have to go into Egypt? Uh, and isn't that invading Egypt? And isn't that going to cause problems uh, for you now that you can't uh, have the government do it for you? Do you have to make a connection with the um, uh, international world of terrorism so that you can move uh, underneath the, the surface and do that? And I think that's when you would that's that's when it's valuable to bring a new group in is when they're doing something in a different organic methodology, as opposed to just golly, we don't have any Spanish speaking Delta greens. How about Mexico's Delta green that they, if it's just the same Delta green, but they've got a different flag on their uh, shoulder patch. That's not interesting. If it's a Delta green that operates under entirely different constraints, like within a theocratic uh, dictatorship in Iran or with no government whatsoever, like in Libya, I think that would be more interesting than just the French who are basically Pisces or Delta Green only with, you know, better lunch breaks. Right. And the, the more sort of out in the fringes they are um, and away from the, uh, you know, the centers of American power, the less you can refer to uh, the actual Delta Green or, uh, you know, any other uh, Western agencies that you want to say exist, they can maybe they can maybe theoretically exist, but you just never encounter them. They're not an issue for you. And you're really doing something that is set in the Delta green universe, but is not a conventional Delta green campaign that it's, uh, it's its own separate self-contained thing that, uh, you know, if you really want to stop and think about, Oh, everybody has their own Delta green that can still could puncture the atmosphere, but the players don't do that because it never comes up. It might be part of their, uh, setting theoretically but not on stage in the game and it would be maybe if you were playing a bunch of superheroes in cape town south africa and you're going out fighting crime and racism like superheroes do and then you know at a, a neat point in the campaign batman comes to cape town and you're like oh cool batman and then he goes away again because he's got other stuff to do so batman doesn't take over the game but he can you know show up as a dramatic moment when you need him. And that would be the advantage to setting it within the Delta green universe, as opposed to just saying, no, this is a different universe. And in this universe, instead of Delta green, there was the French. Right. Or, or you could, Oh, finally a Delta green agent. We've been waiting for them to come. They know everything. And then you get and talk to them and it turns out, Oh no, Delta green is just a dis disinformation campaign. It's a myth. It never existed. Right. You, yeah. You can detour it or you can have the Delta green guy show up and he's like, Oh, you know, I'm glad that you uh, have done all this work. Help me create it up and ship it back to Washington. And they're like, that was not part of our deal here in Iran. Um, we don't want to do that. And so they're like, no, seriously, we have a containment thing in the basement of the Pentagon. We can keep it safe. And they're like, are you Delta green? Or are you majestic? What's going on with this? And you can ask questions 
and, and sort of bring that spy component of Delta Green into the forefront a little bit as well, because they're an external actor, not the, um, uh, not, not the, uh, the, 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 the people who, uh, you are, even in a world as cynical as that of Delta Green, the people who are programmed as players to trust and, and hope at least that they know what they're doing. Well, uh, now that we've finished talking about Delta Green, let's listen to an ad for Delta Green and then uh, see what our next segment after that might be. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and yes, sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around, Patreon backer Jason Thompson has an assignment for uh, Time Incorporated. This may be an unconventional Time Incorporated segment because I, typically just the questioner, have a lot of opinions about this, uh, but his assignment is, how could you make Dunsany or James Branch Cable replace J.R.R. Tolkien as the or source for modern fantasy? Uh, so it's rare, uh, Ken, that you get a, a... Sometimes you've gone on literary missions to, you know, recover lost manuscripts or to, uh, you know, drink with writers or, or artists, but uh, this time you're being actually asked to change the aesthetic history of our times. And, uh... uh I don't want this to be an entire episode in which we just dispute people's premises. But, uh, wh- what was your first thought? My first thought was that, um, uh, you know, Dunsany, uh, you know, had his shot and couldn't do it, um, really. Yeah. And that, uh, James Branch Cabell, um, actually sort of was the king of American fantasy and then managed to set himself on fire very convincingly. Um, There's a lovely line, I think it's from Michael Swanwick, that says, no one has ever steered a great career as thoroughly onto the rocks as James Branch Cabell. And so, um, uh, the interesting... And and how did he do that, for for those unfamiliar? He actually did what we all um, uh, accuse fantasy authors of doing. He insisted that all of his uh, worlds were in the same fantasy universe, connected them all with corrected versions of his books, and insisted that everyone had to read all of his books if they wanted to get into his world. He he, uh, created a uniform edition of his own works uh the, the what was called the biography of manuel was the um overarching title of like 27 novels some of which had fantasy content some of which had fantasy content clumsily inserted it during the edit- editing process so as to connect them all and to insist that everything uh, including books that were nothing but genealogies of the other characters were part of the canon so he managed to traveler himself before traveler yeah you got the silmarillion part of tolkien right but but not the, the Lord of the Rings part. And he did it hilariously so that to prevent people later on from publishing all of his lesser works and ruining the effect. He was like, I know that people are, are going to read uh, Jurgen and some of the other things, and then they're going to drag out all of my half-formed manuscripts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to fully form them and put them all together myself. And there's a moment in his career. So it, it, the uh, attempt to save James Branch Cabell from himself uh, and I think that we are putting a brief pin in the question of whether this is a worthy goal, that <laughs> <laughs> uh, requires the attention of his editor, Guy Holt, who apparently was a very active, hands-on 
editor who could remain friends with James Branch Cavill, even though, according to their correspondence, uh, during every project, they hated each other and would scream recriminations back and forth in, in longhand. And um, I, I will never trust you, you filthy barbarian. You couldn't write your way out of a wet paper sack back and forth, back and forth. And then the book would come out and they would both sort of sigh and look at it and say, yeah, that was a lot better than it could have been. And do the next book. And at some point, um, uh, Guy Holt got sick and tired of dealing with James Branch Cabell, uh, possibly during his fourth or fifth uh, time being hauled into the courts on obscenity charges for printing James Branch Cabell. And he said, you know what? I'm going to leave this publishing company uh, and I'm going to go found my own publishing company and you can come with uh, and uh, then we'll we'll have the James Branch uh, Cabell in John Day, not at McBride and everything will be great. And Cabell said, no, no, I know enough now. I can sort of guide my own stuff through this other smaller publisher that I can trust to do everything only the way that I tell them. And I think you can begin to see where the problem sets in at that point. Um, so if we can prevent Guy Holt from leaving McBride, or we can get James Branch Cabell to agree to follow Guy Holt to John Day, we at the very least make him re-redo Jurgen and all the other books that are good in a, uh, in uh, John Day editions so that we at least delay the creation of uh, the biography of Manuel. And eventually, Cabell himself even begins to sort of think better of it because he changes his pen name, starts writing entirely different kinds of books, and and, and leaves that uh, uh, project behind a little bit. Right. So we can somewhat improve the reputation of James Ranch Cabell and uh, have him be a bigger influence than on just Jack Vance. Right. Um, although he's also, I think, influenced like, uh, uh, other, like Ray Bradbury and Tim Powers and other people have, have fallen in, uh, into James Branch Cabell's sway. Uh, but he, but he's not the, 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 the thing that he, he was not what Tolkien became, certainly. Right. And, and there's a reason why, uh, I would much, you know, infinitely prefer what Vance takes from him and then melds with, uh, Robert E. Howard and Fritz Leiber than the actual Cabell. And, uh, with Dunsany, again, it's like you could make him a, an influence on more than, say, just Tanif Lee, but there's a lot that we would have to uh, show our prospective person who's going to be the er person of fantasy uh, to, uh, here's what Tolkien will do if you don't do it first, and here's how to do that. And there's a, a, the, the reason that those are not the, the sort of er source is that Tolkien introduces naturalistic sensory realism into the world of fantasy, which is otherwise sort of a symbolist fairy tale for adults and is kind of twee and is not trying to make you feel that you're in the, you know, trudging through the swamps of Mordor. And it's that use of documentary sensory realism that powers Tolkien. It's the naturalistic characters you care about. And I know it's weird to think of his characters as as naturalistic, but they are palpable people in a way that nobody in Cabell or Dunsany is. Also, there's the epic plotting that Tolkien brings uh, and is not, and there is not really even just unprecedented in fantasy fiction, but it's kind of unprecedented in most fiction up, up until then that this, you know, gigantic sweeping narrative that all, for all of its Tom Bombadils and, and it's stopping to sing in the taverns all kind of converges in this uh, sort of what we retrospectively think as great classic narrative and then goes on to, you know, influence all sorts of things from Hollywood blockbusters to JK Rowling that our, our sense of what an epic mythic story is, is what Tolkien adds from uh, literary fiction and from, uh, this uh, sense of, of plotting writ large of a genre that was previously mostly confined to, you know, uh, short novels at best and more likely uh, short stories, that those are, that's a big chunk of stuff to go and find someone, whether it's Cabell or Dunsany or someone we want to make up. Or William O. Hodgson. to all take on board. <laughs> or William O. Hodgson, who sort of did that with the Nightland. And the problem with the Nightland is it's, much more inaccessible than uh, English uh, uh, fairy tales are. Right. Hodgson is probably, I, I would think, a better bat. That his char- his people are closer to being people. You know, but he's still also sort of in that symbolist sort of, uh, you know, lands of the weird and uh, creating uh, 
an unreal world that seems vivid rather than uh, creating an unreal world that feels real. Real, right. Um, yeah, in terms of naturalistic fantasy, a lot of it is just that Tolkien is writing after the rise of naturalism in uh, mainstream fiction is taking over, and also within a tradition of um, very, very quotidian naturalistic fiction that is also popular. Um, America, for all the Theodore Dreisers, um, doesn't really have a Dickens, doesn't have a, a, a novelist who writes about lived life in a way that literally everyone in the country gets into. Um, if Americans want to read life as it's lived, they read Dickens. They didn't read, uh, Theodore Dreiser. They didn't read, um, uh, certainly they didn't read the Jameses, um, and for good reason. But, uh, th th that was, th those were literary success to steams, but they were not mass, uh, popular, uh, novels in the way that not just, uh, Dickens, but also, uh, Trollope and also, uh, Thackeray Hardy. and also Hardy yeah. and all those, these guys were, you know, you would, coal miners were reading them, railway workers, everyone was reading that stuff. That was not the case necessarily in the American fictional environment. Um, Cabell certainly, you know, scorned a realism as, uh, as beneath a, a Virginia gentleman. Dunzany, um, likewise, uh, felt that realism, the whole point of writing fantasy was to avoid realism, was to create, as you say, this sort of, uh, not necessarily a fever dream, but this sense of heightened reality. And that happens even in his more realistic stories, in his, um, murder mysteries, for example. They're all sort of, uh, take place in a weird heightened sort of, um, Cornell Woolrichy type universe, not in a, a, uh, more normal, uh, even Raymond Chandlery type universe. Right. So the things that we think of as being sort of uh, stodgy and corny and Tolkien, or just things that you know that are too ingrained in the genre now to escape. You know, the whole elves, dwarves, halflings thing, or uh, that those are still kind of surface elements that were transmitted uh, via the power of, of Tolkien, and then into D and D. Right, that you would have to. The the other sec secret here is now. Now Tolkien was gigantic uh, before D and D, and was and was at the crest of his popularity when uh, uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson started creating uh, D and D. But then uh, it was the influence of D and D and D and D fiction that sort of codified uh, the elements in Tolkien as not just being in Tolkien, but also as the ur source of modern. Fantasy. Now, certainly you had uh, people writing in that vein in parallel who, you know, wouldn't know a D4 if they stepped on it, uh, like Terry Brooks, for example. Right. But the, the thing that sort of made all of his assumptions, the assumptions of fantasy, were part and parcel of role playing. So possibly what you might have to do to make uh, someone other than Tolkien, perhaps someone coming along slightly later, uh, first of all, you would have to... What you have to do to make this work is you have to kill Tolkien and eliminate role playing. <laughs> and um, those seem harsh. I mean, Tolkien, of course, was in World War One, so killing Tolkien is sadly not hard on a historical level. Um, the other thing you can do to Tolkien, by the way, when he sent in his uh, Lord of the Rings to Alan Unwin, Alan Unwin said, this is way too long and full of garbage, and we will not publish it. And Tolkien said, oh, I'll, you're going to publish it, and you're also going to publish the damn Silmarillion, too. And they were like, ha, ha, you have us confused with a different publisher entirely. And that sort of is where things stood for a decade. And either Alan Unwin could have brought out the Silmarillion, which I think would have killed uh, Tolkien's reputation stone dead, or they could have cut Lord of the Rings, um, like, uh, uh, blinkered idiots, which would also have killed Tolkien's reputation because at one point he wrote them and said, just publish any part of it. I just want the book out of my life. And if they'd done that, if they, you know, had some, uh, eager beaver editor come through and say, you know, what we need to do is make this more like Dunzany and, um, uh, chopped it up and, and released it as a la Zany or a cable, uh, or cable novel. Um, then yeah, that would have probably, uh, ruined Tolkien's, uh, rep pretty well. Although I think then the sort of foundational genre of fantasy might have been um, uh, Fritz Leiber or Robert E. Howard or somebody. It, it would not have then reverted back to Dunsany and Cable. Uh, Cable. Right. And, and the original question, I should say, uh, said, well, you could do Robert E. Howard, but that's too easy. Yeah. So another issue is, is there D&D &D and therefore role-playing without Tolkien? Uh, because certainly uh, Dave and Gary knew uh, 
uh, Howard and, and Liber, and they didn't necessarily need Tolkien to do their thing. So it's possible that there's a D&D, but it's also, I think, entirely possible that the cultural salience of Tolkien as a sort of a subcultural phenomenon was also necessary, uh, if not for the invention of role-playing, at least for its propagation. For its promulgation. That, the, without yeah. uh, uh, Tolkien having laid the, uh, the, the, the gospel of elves and dwarves and, and nonsense uh, in, like, every dorm room across America, that there might not have been a similar urge in that same dorm room a decade later to play Dungeons & Dragons. Right, which gets us to the fundamental paradox of you can, cannot go back into time and possibly eliminate role-playing because... If you're not involved in Nephilim and suppressed transmissions, Time Incorporated never comes to you, never gives you a time machine, and therefore you can't possibly have done that. And like any clever time traveler, you're willing to entertain suggestions that would not erase you from the time stream, but completely result in, you know, this is the, I, I guess, the the timeline where you... Uh, uh, you know, wind up as an aide to Mitch McConnell or something, you know, the <laughs> or darkest timeline. A, a, a talking head on it. Fox News. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, I, and even that thought alone <laughs> is, uh, is enough to, I, I think that, uh, you, you know, despite our, our great and surpassing love, uh, for our, uh, Patreon backers and for Jason Thompson. Yeah, specifically. That I think that, <laughs> yes, that, that I think this mission is not just, uh, uh, impossible, but dangerous. Right. Um, uh, yes, we, we cannot, we cannot risk a world in which I not only have to wear a tie, I have to do it on television. Um, yeah. so, uh, and where you're not currently listening, listener to this podcast, right? You are, you're instead watching me on the five and that's best case scenario. Uh, well, since this podcast has not been erased from the time stream, we can therefore convincingly promise that there'll be another one next week. And until then we'll, uh, wave you bye-bye, uh, with, uh, Tolkien's, a life and reputation still intact. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astfagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Trade symbolist witticisms with such backers as... Wayne Peterson. Christopher Gunning. Neil Dalton. Neil Kaplan. And Oren Gishori. Snag Canon Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash kenrobin. New designs include... This bicycle does not make toast. And nod knowingly if you're a tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>